Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. I'm here today with Kara Cooney, who is a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA with a specialty in craft production, coffin studies, and economies in the ancient world. She has created and produced a miniseries for the Discovery Channel called Out of Egypt, and she's also the author of multiple books, including The Woman Who Would Be King, Hatshepsut's Rise to Power in Ancient Egypt. That's a tough one to pronounce. Hatshepsut's its rise in power in ancient Egypt in 2014, and when women ruled the world, six queens of Egypt in 2018. And she has an upcoming book called The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt in the Modern World, which is available for pre-order now on Amazon. So is there anything major I'm leaving out? No, no, I would, um, I even have my Hatshepsut mug. Can you see it? What oh would, yeah, that's what, great. What awesome. would Hatshepsut do? Um, the, the pronunciation of Hatshepsut is a tricky one. So, um, a lot of people say hat, cheap suit, hot Shepsut, you know, that's a way to do it. But, um, when I, when I typed it out, I thought I would be able to say it more easily. Um, so I guess my first question, I was just looking at your biography last night online and you've been involved in so many different things, both popular things, uh, kind of for the masses and shows on discovery, but also really specific academic research. Um, and I guess my, my first question is, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you became an Egyptologist and kind of what your interests are and, and, and uh, what your work is focused on? Yeah, it's funny how life works, you know, that I end up having this um, rather uh, split personality in a sense that I have the the trade books and the public stuff on the one hand, and then on the other, I do the the more serious uh, academic work. Um, and it's it, it's funny. I, I had a colleague. Um, I told him once, well, you know, I I didn't plan any of this, and he said <laughs> dismissively, "Oh, Kara, I'm sure that's what you would all want us to believe." <laughs> I'm going, oh my God, that's horrible. Then I thought, of course, everyone probably believes that, uh, that, that somehow I planned this career to have this public focus as well as um, a, an academic bent. And um, it's funny, it's just the way life works. You know, you get into circumstances and places and situations in which you uh, end up taking a bit of a sidetrack. And if you're able to maintain the original course that you took, um, then you can maintain both. So, but the, but as for me and why I ended up on this journey to begin with, um, I remember I was at the University of Texas at Austin and I was a finalist for a Marshall scholarship. And during the Marshall scholarship process, you, you decide what your graduate career would be. What would you study if you could study anything in the world that you wanted? Mm. And I remember knowing that, you know, I'm in the humanities, I'm studying ancient civilizations. I'm drawn to Egypt, but UT Austin, University of Texas at Austin doesn't have a lot of ancient Egypt. And I break out the, the catalogs. This is it with paper back in the day, right? Like, you know, like phone book type paper um, in uh, the, well, this would be like 92, probably 1992. And started looking at the courses offered at places like Oxford and Cambridge and, and Liverpool, because that's where the Marshall scholarship would take place. And mm. And looking at all of these courses for ancient Egypt, I'm like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I, I'm going to do that. And I don't know why um, that was the thing that ended up biting me and pulling me in. I didn't end up going to Britain. I instead got a full scholarship and stipend to go to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. So I went there instead. And um, I seem to not have looked back. It's, um, it's something that I continue to want to devote my time and attention to. Wow. And I, I also saw that, one thing that jumped out to me was that you have traveled around the world studying hundreds of Egyptian coffins. And I found that to be fascinating. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, if Egypt hadn't been colonized by in multiple waves of colonization, but particularly by the by the West, by the French and the British, the Ottomans, the French and the British, really, 
um, in the last um, hundred, couple hundred years of its existence, then I wouldn't have to travel around the world to see coffins. I would just go to Egypt and see their coffins. <laughs> but instead, because of this uh, colonialization, these um, occupations, if you like, and because of the removal of objects of cultural heritage that we might now call Egypt's national patrimony, right? Being removed and put in places like the Louvre in France and the, the British Museum in, in London and the Met in, in New York, I end up having to travel, getting to travel. I mean, it depends on your perspective, right? And, yeah. and how you, what you think of travel. But I, I have to raise the money and, and or apply for the grants to um, go and study something in a museum space that um, has nothing to do with the place that I'm in. So I've been mm -hmm. to, I, I can't list all of the places, but I've been to museums in London, Paris, New York, I've already mentioned, but also Berlin, Brussels, Frankfurt, Leiden in the Netherlands, um, Liverpool, Manchester. Um, I, yeah, I could go on. I mean, throughout Italy, Rome, Turin, um, and, and on, Florence. But, you know, so I'm, I'm collecting data about these coffins. I'm recording pictorially wherever I can what these coffins are about, but mostly I'm looking at them in person, very, very carefully examining a coffin from a particular time periods, yellow coffins from the 19th, 20th and 21st dynasties mm. and looking for evidence of reuse um, to see if one dead person was taken out of the coffin and if they updated that coffin and redecorated it for the use of another person, or sometimes they only change the name. And so it's, it's a way for me to get at circumstances of life 3000 years ago in terms of economic downturn, scarcity of materials, um, watching the elites continue to do the same things that they did before because they don't want to give up all of their conspicuous consumption and display. Mm. And so the, the study of these coffins has been, has been the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm now working on a book that deals with coffins in the Cairo Museum, Egyptian Museum Cairo, um, some of which have been moved to the NEMEC, the new museum, National Mu Museum of Egyptian Civilization, and trying to to put together a reuse study with a lot of photos of those of those coffins. So wish yeah. me luck. I will need it. So it's very detailed work. Well, and I think it's a it's I I would just say I think it's hugely valuable to have genuine experts like yourself also involved in popularizing these studies rather than letting others do it, I guess I should say. Um, so I definitely want to talk about your your new book. And uh, like I said, it's available for pre-order now. I was just looking at it last night. It's called The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt in the Modern World. And I guess starting out, can you just tell us a little bit about why the title is The Good Kings and, and what the subject matter is behind that? Yeah, it's a sly title in the same way my the title of my last book, When Women Ruled the World, is another sly title. Um, you open the book, you're like, when women ruled the world, they ruled Egypt, and indeed they did. And then I sweep you out at the knees by telling you that they were all just tools of a masculine patriarchy that was using them as placeholders. Mm. A bit depressing, but in my um, opinion, it's good to tell the truth of what's actually going on. Yeah. The same with the good kings. We look at ancient Egyptian history and we do so without much criticism and very positivistically. We look at it as a, a realm of gold and secrets of something that we want to rediscover that if we did discover what it was all about, we would somehow become better human beings ourselves. We don't look at Egypt through a lens of despotism, except perhaps if you are Jewish and you celebrate a Passover every year and you have an understanding of a king who will not let your people go. Um, there is that despotic flavor to our obsession with Egyptian pharaohs, but really in the West, in the United States, in most of Europe and Britain, there is this celebration of that kind of power, that excess, that ability to display King Tet's tomb with a solid gold coffin of 269 pounds. And we rarely ask what the cost is of that mm. kind of display, excess, and authoritarianism. And it's, I, I felt that it was time, the zeitgeist is right for us to look at the Egyptian <laughs> king through this lens 
And to also then also cut off at the knees the idea that the Egyptians were in any way primitive to stop fetishizing and othering the ancient Egyptians, to bring them into our arena and our realm, because this system is our system too. And to show us in this book that we ourselves also worship and are ruled by pharaohs. Mm. And can you talk a little bit about, it's something that, that I've found fascinating to watch is it does seem like there's a, and, and I think maybe a lot of people have this instinct. At times I've felt this way. Um, where people are drawn to authoritarian style leaders. Um, and, it, you know, we, we don't like to admit that, I think, to ourselves. We like to think that, no, we want total democracy and, and rights and everything like that. But then there's something that pulls people in that direction. Can, is that something that was going on in ancient Egypt? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that's going on in our culture. And you can see the kind of person that's attracted to that authoritarianism with the kind of job they might take on. They might be attracted to the strict hierarchy of the military where you better mm. drop it to 20 or you're going to be doing some sort of duty you don't want to be doing or a police officer or some sort of um, some sort of more, I don't prison authority or as or some right. other hierarchical structures. There are lots of hierarchical structures out there that people who are very attracted to authority and it's easy to understand rules move into. Um, then there are crazy people like me who, <laughs> who criticize it all from the outside. But the ancient Egyptians excelled at not only creating an authoritarian system that seems moral and good, but packaging it to its people, elites and its peasantry and masses in a way that continuously reiterates its its moral goodness so that people mm. believe the press and we continue to believe the press we continue to believe that these kings are good they're our fathers they're keeping us safe if they weren't there everything would fall into anarchy and chaos and and we would you know our our daughters would be raped and our sons would be taken into be into some sort of enslavement and everything would go horribly wrong and this is so often the siren song that the authoritarian leaders of today, and it doesn't matter if you're, you live in a democracy or not, there are authoritarian leaders everywhere. And that is that, you know, bad things are going to happen. We need to build a wall. The, the prisons are filling up. These bad people are coming. Um, immigrants are, are here and taking your jobs, those, those kinds of things. So this fear mongering goes hand in hand with an authoritarianism that presents itself as good. And I, just to get this in your mind, I would imagine a main Egyptian temple and on the outside gateway, the outer walls of a pylon gateway, you see the Egyptian king holding an enemy by the head, by the hair, getting ready to crush his skull with a stone mace. Um, in some cases, if it's Ramses II, maybe he's getting ready to run over a whole bunch of enemies with the wheels of his chariot. There are a number of ways of dispatching the other, of, of showing who's the ordered and who's the chaotic and what needs to happen to those people. It's a very simple black and white story. It lacks all nuance. And that is also very attractive for many of us who are afraid, who have been through trauma, who are worried about losing what we have. And so that authoritarianism is extraordinarily attractive, um, no matter what sort of governmental system you live in. Yeah. The, uh, the hierarchies in the law and order definitely appeal. Is there, can you talk a little bit about uh, the religious role of the pharaoh and whether or not that plays a role as well in terms of elevating some a normal person onto some higher level. It's funny that I wrote this book while teaching an Egyptian religion class on divine kingship because that was that was really my way into understanding this authoritarianism, because it's not just authoritarianism, it's an ideological authoritarianism. It's dressed up with religion and made, if you're gonna make something good and moral, then you need to feed into a system that people already believe in. You might be co-opting a system that's much older, a much older religion with much older divinities that is was serving something very different, some other sort of human social system. But once you get kingship in ancient Egypt, that religious system, the reason I'm saying it this way is that, you know, when one is spiritual, 
there are good things to be found in beliefs about the unseen. And I'm not here to denigrate anybody's beliefs in the unseen. If they believe in ancient Egyptian elements around them that are unseen or Celtic or Christian, it doesn't matter. But each of those belief systems can be made hierarchical, can be structured, can be turned into the best tool of the authoritarian ruler so that they can rule with impunity without anybody having the ability to say that they're not doing it right. Because mm-hmm. their leadership is the ultimate goodness. It is the only way that you can, you can find that morality. And even our understandings of morality are defined by what serves those in power. Um, ideas like obeying and, and being servile and, and listening to your elders, um, those kinds of things can very often serve the, the upper 1% and the leader at the top. Don't, mm-hmm. don't forget too, that the king himself, I call this the good kings, but this book is also very much about an elite that is being well served by that king themselves. A king is not somebody I would want to be. I don't think you would want to be the king of Egypt, put on your crowns, get dressed for two hours, go out and stand in the incense, do, you know, run around with some live geese flapping in your hands. And then the next ritual is, okay, sir, here are your oars. And you got to run around with the oars. And then you have to remember this incantation and go to the next temple. You know, it's, it's rather interminable. One could imagine that responsibility. That king is serving Egyptian elites usually in it more than the elites are serving him. It depends. And Hmm. the Kings that I've chosen in the book, the good Kings will give some interesting examples of which Kings seem to have power of the elites or vice versa. Um, But they're, they're creating a system that serves the status quo and serves that top 2%. That's something that we also understand in our United States of America, where that top 2% or 1% is getting richer and richer with more of the resources and our social inequality is becoming more and more skewed. Um, and the pandemic has only made it that much worse. Yeah. Well, and that's something I'm really, I'm really interested in the structures of, of governments and, you know, sometimes you'll have a King and there will still be a constitution of some kind or, a another body, an elected body of some kind. And, you know, we've had Kings where they're not Kings and Queens where they're not absolute rulers and there's yeah. different, gradations i'm really interested in like for instance in russia you know people describe vladimir putin as a dictator i think clearly he is but i think even with him there could be some limits or maybe there were 10 years ago but today there aren't and i guess my my question about the pharaohs in egypt is was it were there any other uh entities in the government was there any checks on the pharaoh's power or was it purely like you're talking about um, kind of the elites in an informal sense, turning against someone or how did that work? There are always checks and balances amongst power systems, but, and, and if an, a king or an emperor, any sort of ruler becomes too despotic, that will be a check against him. Hmm. So, and, and that could be, it could take generations for such a check to be fulfilled, but those things will eventually be fulfilled. And you could think of, I don't know, Kim Jong-un, you know, Someday there will be a check on his power, his regime and his family's dynasty will be overthrown and people will then differentiate themselves from that regime, whoever the leaders are of the time. So, you know, the the checks and balances are really where the interesting part of the game comes across. And in Egypt, the other thing that they excel at so well is giving you the appearance of there never being any realpolitik. Nothing going on behind the scenes, no mm. whispers in the dark, no um, Machiavellian sorts of structuring or, or coalition building, no competition amongst elites. And it's a funny thing, but Egypt's geography, I'm not going to say that doesn't happen. Of course, those things are there. But Egypt's geography also seems to push towards and encourage its nilotic way of living, seems to push toward and encourage a very unequal society of one percenters who are the landholders who then work for this king, who then have this massive peasantry who who are eating cheap and easy carbs and a whole lot of beer and aren't really prone to too much revolutionizing. And so you you have a place that develops the most perfect divine kingship the world has ever seen. Mm. And one wonders in those places that so easily turn towards despotism, um, what they might have socially, economically, materially, geographically, that might prime them in that direction that makes it easier for a, an authoritarian leader to keep 
his hands on the, the reins of power more tightly than in other places where there's a lot more competition. Like think of Greece, just think of it in your mind, all those islands, all those city states, all those mountain passes. It's very hard to organize and unify that place. It's a much more competitive place. And as such, you don't see a lot of kings. Sparta had a king, one city state, big deal, who cares? And it's not until empire comes in and unifies that place that it from the outside and imposes that upon them um, with a kind of colonization that, that you see a unification of a very diverse landscape, very competitive geography. You could argue the same for Italy in many ways as well. And we take those things as our model. I think it's important to look at other places um, like Egypt and see how, not that the Egyptians have a DNA that turns them towards authoritarianism, but that their economy and their society is turning them towards authoritarianism. And what I try to do in the book is then ask, well, what is it about the United States after, you know, 250 years of trying out the first democracy in the world that's turning us very quickly towards authoritarianism and that being attractive to us, Mm. safe, good and moral. Um, that's, that's something that I want to question more. Why is that turning so very quickly? Because keep in mind for an Egyptologist, 250 years is nothing. Right. It's, you know, for, for our timeline of 3000 years, when you're looking at long duration history and how it takes generations for things to happen, 250 years is a blip and our democracy is not lasting quite well. Um, and it's moving back towards different systems of power. Yeah, you know, I'll let you ask the next question. But at the same time that the United States and many other places that call themselves democracies are flirting or in an outright love affair with authoritarianism alongside in our post-industrial society and economy, service industry economy, um, an economy that doesn't depend on creation of lots of human beings that that sames out genders and allows genders to be non-binary. That, that economic system is becoming the norm and that economic system is, is not, it's not morality that's changing people and allowing them to be transgender or non-binary or gay people getting married. It's not changing morality, it's changing economies. It's changing money and resources. And at the same time that the authoritarian is rising up, the anti-authoritarian is rising up too. And that's where we get all of the, that's why everyone thinks the world is falling apart right, right. now because the amount of, of discord between two fundamentally different systems is is happening right before our eyes. It's a it's a strange situation. I've talked to my friends about, you know, there's this weird phenomenon now where on one level, you know, uh, our day-to-day lives kind of things seem normal in a sense you could be convinced that a lot of the political stuff is, hey, don't check social media, don't watch TV and it just but on the other hand, uh there's a genuine sense in which things have become more unstable and people are taking kind of radical, you know, yeah. actions based on whatever information they're taking in. And it's, uh, you know, I, 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 we're outside of the whatever window of appropriate political negotiations and debates and all that stuff. Like I have, I feel like I have a pretty wide spectrum of what I would consider but you know, a lot of the country has gone outside of that. And, and um, I never thought we'd be in a situation where, uh, just to put it bluntly, where you know, one of our two parties was more or less saying that uh, the election wasn't, was unfair. And if we had a little more power, we would have overturned it and we would have stayed in power. And that's, that's really scary. Uh, like, regardless of what political uh, you know, orientation you are, that's a scary situation. Um, so, okay, I'll, I'll move on to some more questions about Egypt. I guess I'm putting my cards on the table there a little bit. Um, I mean, no, Patrick, this kind of stuff is in the book. This, this book is gonna, it's gonna upset a whole lot of Egyptologists and ancient historians who think that these things are meant to be studied in their vacuum of antiquity. And instead I blow it all up and say, stop fetishizing the ancient world. We are there. Uh, we have inherited what they've built. And we are still building and creating with it. And we are reaching the end game of what they created with an agricultural revolution, with an industrial revolution. You could argue mm. the Romans started the industrial revolution. I don't think that's that crazy. Mm. And, um, and, then, and then go from there. And what, what is the end game? What is the end result? We're living in it. It's going to take a number of generations to see our way through to this, whatever it is. Um, and I wonder if our planet 
will make it at the same time because yeah. the the way that a patriarchal society works is to pull as many resources to the patriarch as possible and to to not be interested in a sustainability but instead to be interested in power and we are still doing these things and now as and with 8 billion people almost as we cut down all of these forests and pull out all the coal and get all the petrochemicals that we possibly can and fill the ocean with plastic, um, it's, it's an interesting race to the end over the next hundred years. Who's going to win? And will the earth make it in, in the yeah. end? Um, so yeah. yeah, these are things that everybody should be thinking about whether you study an ancient culture of 3000 years ago or not. And it's funny, like you brought up coffins at the beginning and I go, you know, I, I take a, a, a carbon hungry flight to Paris and I look at a bunch of coffins in the Louvre and the museum. And by looking at those coffins, I am examining human reactions to crisis. And mm. that reaction to crisis from some 3000 years ago is, you know what? Yeah, we can't get wood. Yeah, we're having a hard time with this economy and there's grain inflation. But you know what? Let's keep doing the same thing. So let's just take grandma out of the coffin or mom and let's redecorate it, replaster because we've got that stuff and repaint it and pretty it up and then put, you know, my husband into the coffin or my wife or whoever who is recently dead. And people continue to do the same things. And it's only when there is an absolute breaking point that I see in the archaeological record something completely different, which is um, no coffins at all. <laughs> and um, that kind of lack of conspicuous consumption, which is not necessarily as bad a thing as um, some art historians and historians like it is, maybe living in a time period when pyramids were not being built is the time period you would actually want to live in um, rather than being look, able to look up at those pyramids and go, oh, aren't they beautiful? Would you do that? Or would you look at those pyramids and think, God damn it, they're going to get me. They're going to draft me into service now soon. And, and there's this constant worry of your overlord coming to, to tell you what to do. So with in reading a, a preview of your upcoming book, it looked like you profile five different pharaohs in that book. Yep. And I guess, can you just tell us a little bit about who they were and why you selected those five? Yeah, um, good segue, because the first one is Khufu, who built the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau. Mm -hmm. And I have I, I picked kings whose names are well known for the most part and who or whose creations are very well known to us, but kings that are pretty much at the top of their game. If Egypt is 3,000 years of, of up and down apexes and nadirs, then I pick those kings that are, you know, right there up at the top, because not only can I see the excesses of power, I can see the beginnings of the downward slide. It doesn't happen right away, but you can see that all of the things that are being done at the top are preparing the way for the descent. That, that is, it's just the creation of the, of the down the downward fall. And the more Baroque, in a sense, the, the better. So Khufu, who built the Great Pyramid, ends up paving the way for a massive bureaucracy to build those pyramids that takes power away from kingship in general. So after Khufu's mm. time, the king is emasculated, if you like. The king is less um, in the trenches amongst his men, super powerful, because all that he has, you can't build a pyramid without dozens of empowered officials who are knowledgeable on their own and on whom you depend to get that thing done. Mm -hmm. And so the transfer of power and resources and wealth to those men is considerable. And so that was what I was playing with in, in that chapter. Um, the next king is less well-known, the Third. If you saw a statue of him, you see this drawn, sad face, which I call the most effective guilt trip ever carved in stone. This um, this king that's that's angry with you and disappointed all at the same time and wants you to do better, and he ends up breaking his elites. His elites had their own private armies and lots of land of their own, and kind of like Louis the Fourteenth, he brings them all to his new capital city and and really has them by the balls, if if you like. Um, the third one is Akhenaten. Hmm. Have you heard of Akhenaten before? No. Do you know? I don't think so, so this is an e Egyptian king who arguably invented monotheism for the first time on planet Earth. Oh, wow. Um, the one God is the Aten sun in the sky. And he built all of these temples that show him uh, under the rays of that sun, connecting with the sun. He's the son of the sun. 
and he closes down all of the other temples, takes away their resources. And mm. it's, it's a pretty difficult time to be an Egyptian. Lots of change that he only could have instituted if he was at the top of his game. And he was. Egypt was the yeah. richest it had ever been. And I talk about how monotheism as a thing, one God, my God, your gods don't exist or are bad. My God is the only right God, true God, right? How useful that is for authoritarianism. And that it is no surprise to me that the first invention of monotheism happens in the context of an authoritarian regime that is really tightening the screws on its people. Hmm. The fourth one is Taharka, who, it, oh, sorry, Ramses, I skipped Ramses the Great, poor Ramses. The fourth king is Ramses the Great, Ramses the Second, who is well known to you, I assume, right? Or known to you, right? And he he's our populist king. He's our... Um, king who's there like Maximus Meridius amongst his people and gladiator, you know, that good general is there fighting alongside his men, um, pulling in as, as much popular attention as he, pop, as he possibly can, building as many colossal statues as he possibly can. And the mm. connections to our modern political reality are, are so easy to make. It was like, it was so much fun to write that chapter. Um, and then the last king is Taharka, of the 25th dynasty. And he is a king from Sudan whose people for millennia before were colonized and exploited by the ancient Egyptians for their minerals, particularly their gold and their granites. Mm. And Taharka, this is like around 650 BCE, he ends up being the inheritor of a regime that has taken over Egypt. He is an emperor of his, in his own right, an African emperor who has taken over all of Northeastern Africa. And he ends up meeting his end fighting against another emperor, um, one Esarhaddon, who, who takes his son captive and takes Egypt into his own grasp. And it's the, that last chapter is very much a discussion of what colonialism does to people and how hard it, it is to see the power dynamics even after colonialism is left, so that you and I are will, and you can see on, on the screen, on the Zoom as we're talking, are little Latin alphabet letters that are left there as a remnant of the colonialism from ancient Rome that went into Britain and, and imposed its writing system of Latin script upon those people. And we still use that script without even thinking of it as a colonial imposition of Romans who did all kinds of horrible things to the Britons. Um, so th there's, um, there's all kinds of little unseen things. And in the United States in particular, where colonialism is so very new, we still don't even, we still have a hard, very hard time seeing it. You know, where are the indigenous people? Um, wh with whom do they identify? Do they pass as white so-called? And what does Taharka have to say about all of those interesting questions? So it's, it's a book about power. It's a book about how power dresses itself up and makes itself perfect and beautiful. And it's a book about how the Egyptians are not different from us at all. We are, we are doing very much the same things, maybe without all the silly crowns and hats and things, but, um, but we're doing it nonetheless. I'm really glad that you, so it sounds like you're connecting these different themes to the modern yeah. world. Oh yeah, the that's why the title, Patrick, is, is uh, the subtitle. So it's the good kings and then it's absolute power in ancient Egypt and the modern day, because I talk day. so much about modern politics. I even mentioned Obama's tan suit. Do you remember that when he wore a tan suit and yeah. everyone freaked out? Like, how dare you Those wear a tan days. suit? Yeah, then, I'm still know. mad about the tan suit. <laughs> <laughs> things like that. So I throw in little bomo. I throw in little things yeah. where I find appropriate. Yeah. Well, and I think that, uh, again, I'm kind of repeating myself, but I think oftentimes I'll be in a bookstore or whatever and, and, there, you know, a, a lot of people try to find lessons in history, but oftentimes mm -hmm. what you find is that a lot of the people doing this don't actually, they haven't really done a deep dive into the history. And so if you don't really know the specifics that well, then you're trying to make these broad claims and lessons. It gets kind of tricky. It's almost like they're using it to, you know, the 10 lessons of power or whatever it might be. Whereas in this case, I'm just, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you are connecting some of these principles back to today. And I, and I wish there were more experts doing that. I remember talking to Eric Klein, who connected some of his stuff about the end of the Bronze Age um, to, you know, systems today and things like that. And I think we have to think about this stuff. Of course, the specifics are different. 
but the principles of human behavior and human government and how power changes and all that stuff, like you said, there are, there are uh, principles that are sort of universal. Um, I'm surprised that what you're noticing as a pattern is very interesting. And I'm not surprised that it's people who are living a contemporary life and uh, not an ahistorical life, but then go to history looking for something representative to teach us something we need to know today. Mm. We are, but the, but the historians aren't doing it and they should be the ones who are doing it. And I can tell you why it's because academic discipline is that is imposed. It imposes a particularism. And what I mean by that is that every historical story, every um, discussion of a particular king, every statue, every, every archeological site is meant to be, and we are taught to do this, is meant to be discussed in exclusion to your own modern prejudices. It is meant to be particularized and contextualized mm-hmm. within that own space it, it, as much as you can. And we, in my opinion now, that, that amount of academic imposition of particularism, that's a, those are big words, right? But essentially it's, it's made the ancient world so different that we have fetishized it. It's yeah. made it something so other that it's like, oh no, well, the modern world is completely different from the ancient world. And it allows us to have also a kind of modern superiority, a modern exceptionalism, if you will, hmm. and, and treat the ancient world and the modern world as completely separate and different things. When our DNA hasn't changed, our social systems haven't changed, we still write on stuff and, and send each other messages and politics haven't changed a whole hell of a lot. We have more people, but in terms of the people at the top and who's making the, the deals and the coalitions, the money, that, that part hasn't changed too much at all. So I, I would, you know, I've been accused of being universalist. In my first book, my first trade book came out and I started to take on some of those um, particularist tropes and started to tear down those walls. I was, mm. a, a book review called me universalist which is essentially saying that I am imposing my modern Western morals and beliefs onto the ancient world. And I should not do that bad, bad scholar. Right. And, and instead, I I think that we do this all the time. Every single time a history is written, we are imposing our modern beliefs onto it. And there is no way to, to particularize or to create a separation. And I think that all of these things that we get from the ancient world, particularly things in texts or statues or monuments, they are stories being told to us by ancient people with their own perspective and agenda. And we need to see it in that way and, and analyze it in that way. And for the first time, please God or gods, let us be um, critical of the ancient Egyptian kings and not just celebrate their gold and their, their creations, but say, okay, what does this mean for the people who are... Right. who are serving under them. How did this work? How are we like that? Drop some of our modern exceptionalism. Yeah. I, you know, I, I know there is that hesitancy within academia, you know, and, and I under, you know, I don't know how much of it is just getting into such niche focuses that people are hesitant to make broad, any kind of broad statements, but there, you know, the ancient Egyptians were just people too. You know, we're yeah. not talking about a different species of people. It, in yeah. What you're saying, like fetishizing, they were just people and you know we still our lives are still similar in many ways we still go sit in big stadiums and watch sports games and i mean there's so much you know that still is reminiscent of what people were doing in ancient times i you know so um so anyways i i definitely want to uh touch on uh a couple of your previous books mm-hmm. um and you're talking about kind of being able to look at these societies and, and, uh, and analyze them and what kind of, you know, um, you, you mentioned patriarchal societies and your two previous books were about female rulers in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I guess my question is, it sounds like in ancient Egypt, you had some female rulers or more female rulers than some other ancient cultures. And so can you just talk a little bit about that and what that really meant and why Egypt was different than some yeah. other city-states in Greece or the Persian Empire or something like that? Yeah, it's, it's really extraordinary. I teach a class at UCLA called Women in Power in the Ancient World. And we spend half of the class on Egypt because there are so many female rulers. And we spend a week on Persia, a week on Greece, a week on the Levant, a week on Mesopotamia throughout the quarter, right? We have ancient China and India as well. Um, and 
and as we're going through, it's like, look at, well, there's no women leaders in any of these other places. If there are, they rule behind the throne. They have to manipulate and whisper into the, into the ear of the woman that she's sleeping, the man that she's sleeping with, you know, all of these tropes of being the duplicitous conniving woman that are imposed upon um, the females of the species because it's their only recourse to power. And yet in Egypt, you have a regularized systematic means for women to not just rule at the very top of society, but as nothing less than king. And that's crazy. And it, it's, it happens five times in history for certain. And those times are um, Nefru Sobek of dynasty 12, Hatshepsut of dynasty 18, Nefertiti of dynasty 18, probably, though there's argument about that one, um, Tawasrit of dynasty 19, and then Cleopatra of the Ptolemaic dynasty. T Cleopatra doesn't ever call herself Nesut, I don't think, but the titles and names she takes on as king are pretty clear. Mm. Um, and so I think it, it fits. You know, she's trying to have her cake and eat it too and work with a Greek-speaking world that doesn't appreciate that kind of power for a woman. And, and, and so, but, but I'll put her in, I, and I do in the book, put her into that category. So then, so then you ask yourself, well, what the hell's going on? Same DNA, are they more enlightened? Can't be, it's, is it their geography? Maybe a little bit. Um, so, so think of the geography of ancient Egypt that is very hard to invade. You've got the Mediterranean Sea to the North. You've got big deserts on all three sides. You've got those cataract, big granite boulders down to the South. And until the age of empires, you know, until guys like Taharqa rose up and the Assyrians, the Persians and the Romans and all of that, not to mention Alexander the Great, until that imperial technology was available, Egypt couldn't really be invaded en masse by outsiders. So you had this happy situation in which you, you're safe from the outside. And then on the inside, you've got this miracle of Nilotic flooding that creates almost gangbusters uh, crops of, of wheat and barley every year without very much labor at all. And, you know, in Greece, they're like moving rocks and they're waiting for the, the rain gods to please rain. And, oh my God, will we be able to grow anything? Okay, never mind, get the sheep and goats and we'll just have that this year. You know, other places where farming is much more difficult. Egypt is overflowing in, in cheap grain. And so you have a high population. Mm. So you have a high population ruled by, um, and the Nile also allows provincial landowners to keep tabs on their people, to have the only nice boat that can take grain. And the other guys are all using papyrus skiffs, right? You can't put grain in that. It's going to get wet and get spoiled. So you have a high social inequality within Egypt, but enough plenty in cheap carbs so that people aren't fighting against each other. There's very little competition within Egypt. So long story short, you have an environmental system in which divine kingship, that status quo of generation following generation of king after king after king, without a lot of regicide, without a lot of uh, kings getting thrown off the throne, you create the most perfect divine kingship the world has ever seen. And so once you develop that, now let's say your king dies in a hunting accident, unexpectedly, oh my God, the king is dead. And let's say he left a 12 year old. You know, the crown prince is his, maybe his eldest, maybe his favorite. We don't know exactly how the next king was chosen, but let's say he's only 12. And so what do you do? You, you're not in a land like Mesopotamia or Rome or Greece or China, where a whole bunch of warlords are going to create coalitions, get together and try to figure out who's going to be king next. You are instead in a land where everyone's like, oh my God, let's keep the status quo. I'm so comfy and cozy and everything's great. So let's just let his mother rule on his behalf until he's old enough, get the 12 year old on the throne. We bow down to him. Cool, cool. And your religion's going to make you do that as well. And so you have women, dozens and dozens of women, not way more than five that are ruling as regents on behalf of young boys who are not ready yet to be king. Wow. And then every now and then something's a little off like Hatshepsut, you know, her, the kid she's ruling for is not her son. It's her nephew at best from a harem situation. And she's able and wants to name herself king because that's not her kid. And then, so she, you know, you'll have the regency working in your favor. Same may have happened for Tawasret, who's ruling for a kid who's not her son. And, and so the long and short of it is, for this very long answer, is that you've got a very unequal authoritarian situation. And the more authoritarian 
the more female power can come into play as a placeholder for a patriarchy. So that's the deep, dark underbelly that I discovered writing that book. I'm like, it's not that we don't celebrate women for being able to rule. That's awesome. And we have these, these images and examples now. And you can say to a young girl, look, she could do it. You can do it or whatever. That exists, right? Yeah. But at the same time, these women are ruling in a patriarchy and they cannot change the system to fit themselves. They have to have that. They have to mold themselves to the system, even to the point of cross-dressing and becoming masculine in their, in their imagery. So it's, um, it's, it's the more, the more authoritarian it is, the more easily a woman can find a way to power. Think of Greece. You brought up Greece. One man falls, another man going to take his place. No place for a woman in that situation. The more competitive it is, the less room for women. And I would put the United States into that Greco-Roman category. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because there will be times uh, where people will cite more authoritarian countries and say X country has even had this number of female uh, rulers or presidents or whatever, and the United States hasn't. And it's actually, I I get the point they're trying to make, but you're actually describing that it, you know, um, in some ways, uh, the the more authoritarian something is, it, it, it forces it forces women to, to have to take over in certain circumstances. Yeah, they, Is that become, the idea? they become the representative of the family of a mm, dynasty. Right. And as in many of those cases that you're mentioning in places that where there may be democracies, but there are authoritarian leaders or populism or something underway in many of those places like um, Chile or, or India, it's a it's a regicide, if you like, an assassination that demands that a woman step forward and say, OK, I'll do it. You know, mm-hmm. my father died for this and I will now step forward and do it. Here's a really interesting example that will prove your point. Um, in Egypt, before uh, the revolution, who was our dynasty? But Hosni Mubarak's family and his wife, Suzanne Mubarak, was a very powerful woman with no official position of power. You didn't need to give her an official position. In fact, official would have messed it all up probably, but there she is, you know, creating libraries and schools and doing all of these things. And, and Hosni Mubarak is placing his sons, Gamal, and I can't remember the name of the other one, into positions of power. And when that revolution happened, uh, the, the way, and, and it went through Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood and religion and all of these other things, but where did it end up? It ended up with the most powerful institution in all of Egypt military police. And I say military slash police, because those two things, while in competition with each other within Egypt, are very much mutually dependent upon one another. And when the military police in the name of of Sisi took over Egypt, you see almost no female power except as he appoints to ministry positions, because military systems don't generally allow women into high positions of power and keep the men in charge. And so now you don't see a lot of of female power happening through the dynasty or through the family, you see it dependent upon Sisi, who's now appointing people in. In the same way we have military generals today saying we need more military women. And in every branch except for the Marines, you see parity between males and females quickly increasing because it's hierarchically mandated. The military in the United States also proves this point, that the more hierarchical and authoritarian a system is, If you want women in that system, the more quickly you can get them there. And our economic system in the United States with Fortune 500 companies and how many of them of those CEOs are female, and it's 8%, Mm. I think, in the United States right now, single digits, it means that if we allow the competitive organic nature of people to choose women, they will not, they do not. And the more competitive the system is, the less a woman is able to get into it. And so you, you see very little opportunities for women and no mechanism to impose them upon people. Right. Right. There's no dynasties. Maybe like Walmart created dynasty and maybe she could become CEO, one of the daughters or who knows, but there's very little mechanism to impose a female ruler on um, the economic spectrum in in our world. Wow. Uh, This is fascinating. So essentially you're deciding, you're saying that basically an unexpected side effect of an authoritarian patriarchal system is that from time to time you will have women coming into power in that system, whereas you might not see that as much in a less authoritarian system. Yeah, and let me let me be clear because you know 
the city states of Mesopotamia were pretty damn authoritarian in their in their way. There's this is a complicated story. There's right. a lot of warlording going on. So in Egypt, where there's not a lot of warlording going on, and there's a lot of defensive posturing and and attempts to protect the status quo in a risk averse way, that's where the women come in because women without professions, without armies of their own, without inheritances in the same way, can do very little to push against the male who's at the center of the circle of power, even if that male is 12. The Egyptians could have decided to be super um, anti-feminist or misogynist and to put the uncle in charge of that 12-year-old kid who can't rule on his own. They could have decided to take the dead king's brother because they need a man and only a man can decide and all of these things. But the Egyptians knew that if you put that uncle in charge as the decision maker of that kid, then the uncle is, I don't know, what way more likely, and we all know it, way more likely to take a knife out, kill the kid, right. say the king's fine, and everyone's like, oh, Dan, you're right, it is. And so the Egyptians made sure that they created systems, little hacks, put a woman there. What's she going to do with it? What's the mo- And she's his mother. She loves the boy. She's not going to compete against him. When the regency gets a little twisted and the woman is, woman is able to take more power, it's generally because she's not the kid's mother. I'm not going to take the kingship from my son. I love my son. So you use the emotions of the mother-son bond to then perpetuate the system of the patriarchy. Mm. If, however, you try to do that in a city-state in Mesopotamia or Rome or Greece, then you, know, you try to put a woman in power as a decision maker and a 12-year-old on the throne. All the warlord's going to come at you he's going to last two weeks and the woman's going to be dead too. And it's just going to be a disaster with the amount of competition you have there. So using women in this way, in this patriarchal way works in a protected risk averse society. Mm. It does not work and does not help in a more militarized warlording competitive type society. So it's, there's a lot of variables, but it, yeah, that's, that's how I, that's how I see it. That's fascinating. This is all totally new to me. Uh, just to remind listeners, we are speaking to Egyptologist Kara Cooney today about her upcoming book called The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt in the Modern World, as well as her 2018 book, When Women Ruled the World, Six Queens of Egypt. Um, I want to make sure that uh, you know I give you a chance to, to tell listeners where they can find your work and and check out these books and stuff like that. Obviously, they're on Amazon. Um, is there anyone else, anywhere else you want to point them to? Yeah, I'm doing signed copies of the new book and, and probably um, When Women Rule the World too at my local um, bookshop called Book Soup, like soup that you eat. Um, and it's booksoup.com and you can find um, the signed copies there. And my website will have all kinds of information. So if you go, if you just Google Karakuni, you'll find my Squarescape space page. Squarespace page. And so that should be no problem. And, um, and I'm on all the socials. So you'll find me on, on Facebook where some of the debating gets pretty hot. So if you want to, if you want to spend time with, uh, intelligent people who are arguing about, um, everything from environmental restrictions, regulations to abortion, to authoritarianism and masking, in addition to ancient studies, you can you can go to my Facebook page where most of the rip roarous um, debates are happening. But I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, um, and I just started a YouTube channel, and I now have a podcast of my own, which is oh. new, and oh, it's nice. called After Lives with Kara Cooney. And I think we have one, just one, one episode up, and it's about coffins. So if you want, and it's called Coffin Commerce. So if you want to know how coffins were bought and sold and reused, um, you know where to go. I'm really looking forward to diving into more of your work. It all looks very interesting. We're just getting into Egyptology sort of in this podcast. We've spent most of our time so far on, on Greece. And, you know, I think one big benefit of more experts like yourself doing this kind of work is people have lost such a sense of history. You know, it's like we're living in some world where there, you know, so we have to be able to think about these past civilizations. Many times we've inherited aspects of these civilizations and we have to understand them and have an awareness. We're not, you know, we're not living in a vacuum. And it's like, I don't want to go off that cliff. You know, I don't want to go off that cliff that 
when there's so many warnings, uh, you know, we have to find a way not to. Yeah, and we can all see the cliff. That's the one thing that unites the right and the left is everyone knows the cliff is there and they know that we're all running towards it headlong. And we, it, it, we as a super species, you know, as a super organism, I mean, that, that, you know, even if you and I see the cliff, we can try to tell the superorganism there's a cliff there. And, and the superorganism is like, nope, this is the system, jobs, economy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we keep running, we, got, we keep working. And it's funny, we'll be running towards that cliff headlong, working as hard as we do. Everyone hustling and doing their three jobs and in school and paying off their loans and doing all their stuff at the same time. So it's, it's, uh, it's a crazy time to, to be alive. And as for the loss of history, you know, it's, I think about this, how ahistorical the world has become, how yeah. students don't want to study history. In some ways, I find it positive, and I'll tell you why. The history as has been written, the history of the, the narrative tomes, the, the thousand pages of the rise and fall of X or Z, the, the Hitler story of, you know, and then the Reichstag burned and he took the reins of power and they tell it in the same way again and again. I think people are sick of that kind of history and they're bored of it and they want something different. And that history is being rejected, actively rejected, also by the right and the left, I would say. Um, and they're looking for something new. And I don't think we even know what that new history is, but something that is more human, more relevant, um, more meaningful to what it is that we're going through today. It's not that we're a bunch of stupid people who are all lazy eating popcorn and watching binge watching whatever. People yeah. want to know what's going on. They, they're interested in, oh my goodness, there was this 1918 epidemic and how, how did that work yeah. and, and what's going on and how is this different <laughs> thing? All of a sudden it, it gets real relevant. <laughs> exactly, right? But if you write the book in the same boring way that everyone's written the book before, yeah. No one wants that. People are hungry and want something new. I think it's why podcasting has exploded and everyone's got a podcast here or there. I mean, I think people are also, they're, they're so in the service economy at their screens, writing, writing, doing, doing, producing, producing. They don't want to sit down and read. They want to talk. They want to listen. They want to have conversations. They want to have a give and take. They don't want the authoritarian voice to be speaking to them. They want to have some sort of pushback to, to have a conversation between two people. So I think that the way that we are producing content as historians must change. And academics are like, wait, what? Why? And, um, and I wonder, you know, I've created a podcast. Am I going to get anything from that when I go up for promotion at UCLA? Absolutely right. not. Right. Am I going to put that on my promotion documentation and say, oh, book A, book B, podcast? Probably, I mean, maybe. Maybe I do as kind of a revolutionary, like, we need to change <laughs> discipline. Maybe yeah. I do. I, I put, I kept my TV show off of there in 2009. And the person running my, my promotion, the, that committee was like, you need to put that on here. And I was terrified. I was like, oh my God, they're going to crucify me. They're going to tell me I'm doing all these bad things. I'm being, you know, universalist or what it, whatever it is, is I'm comparing things and people. And it, it turned out to be very positive and complimentary. And it made me realize how hungry people are for history, but done in a different way from all of this. Yeah. We, we need something that, that speaks to us more. And, you know, one small final point, like, um, about on this topic, my, my son is dyslexic and he also has other neurological issues, which I think is not unusual in this very polluted, on this very polluted planet yeah. that you have kids with ADHD, um, and other things. These neurological issues are becoming more the norm than we would ever imagine. And you can have the cleanest pregnancy in the world. It doesn't matter. You're still living here with everybody else. And as we produce more of these neurologically different children, we're now growing up to be adults. They don't want to read and consume th these ideas in the same way that, that our generation, generations before had done. And so you're on the forefront of this. Other people are on the forefront of this. And I think it's, um, we're all having this conversation about what history can be. So when next time you think about this, try not to think of it in such a negative way um, mm -hmm. and see the hunger that you, you've got good numbers on your podcast. You've got people yep. listening. You have people yep. really interested. So look at that and then say, okay, what, what, what is going on that's changing this from the inside out that some people who are on the forefront of it are like, oh, you know, we need to move in that direction. This is the way people need to think and listen now. 
Um, those who are natural teachers, and I'll put myself into that category. That's my, that's what I do. I'm an educator. Yeah. I, you know, when you're in front of a classroom and you got them, you know it. And you're like, oh, it's because I'm communicating this way or I'm doing it in that way. And if you have a project in a class that draws students in and they just, they're like, oh my God, I have to keep working on this. Who wants to keep working on a paper? No one, you know, no one wants to write their research paper in this way. But if you get to do your own podcast and, and put it out there for people to see, or you get to present your information in a different way, then it, it creates an interest that wasn't necessarily there before. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. I need to be more optimistic because there clearly is that desire. And I appreciate the work you're doing. Things are evolving. What people want in the marketplace is evolving. And I'm just happy that there are historians like yourself that are willing to build that bigger platform and and try to make that, that impact. So thanks for talking to me. And I'm sure we'll be in touch in the future. And good luck with everything. We'll definitely post links to your books and your website and all of that. So. Great. Hey, thanks so much, Patrick. I, I love talking with you. It was great. You're great questions. Thanks. Thanks, Kara. Thanks to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.